Today on Pens Exchange, the economics of the Renaissance art. Welcome to Pens Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Ennio Piano. He's an assistant professor of economics at Middle Tennessee State University and a faculty member at the Political Economy Research Institute. He received a bachelor's degree in history from the Universitat Degli Studi di Siena and PhD in economics from George Mason University. His research focuses on understanding the organization of incentives in various contexts, from 19th century armies to motorcycle gangs, from high-end restaurants to Renaissance art markets. Welcome, Enio. Thank you for having me, Fernando. As its name implies, the Renaissance is often thought as a turning point in human history. Art is its most celebrated long-lasting legacy and the romanticized perception of the artist as a genius is its byproduct. But how exactly did artists become artists? Who commissioned their work? How could the patrons that commissioned said work oversee the quality of the art they were commissioning? We will be talking today with Ennio Piano about the economics of art markets in the Renaissance. I want to start our conversation, Ennio, by asking your general views on art from an economic standpoint. For example, do you see art, however you want to define it, as being more of a consumption or maybe as an investment good? And I'm not just referring to the modern idea of buying art to speculate with it, but with the notion that perhaps art helps increase your own human capital. Okay, so that's a great question. And I'm going to answer it by saying that I think it's a little bit of both. So, of course, there is an element of consumption for art. You know, some people buy art just to have it in their house to look at it uh, if you consider like for instance novels uh, fiction as art well that's clearly a case of consumption uh, movies uh, some movies are probably art and people consume them so definitely there's an aspect of consumption uh, but I do think there's also an aspect of investment and uh, actually this goes back to um, the renaissance as well or, or medieval painting where uh, art was definitely seen as having a didactic instructional function. So a justific one of the justifications for having a lot of paintings in churches was that the churchgoers needed to be instructed into both episodes, for instance, from the Old Testament or episodes from the New Testament. And so the paintings could help in that because most people that went to church couldn't read. And... That means that they couldn't understand Latin in many cases. And so they also couldn't understand the homilies or the readings of the, of the gospel during, during mass. And so the paintings could help uh, both to communicate these episodes, but also to give a sense of, for instance, Catholic theology, Christian theology, to understand the relationship, for instance, within the Trinity, between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the nature of the Virgin Mary, and so on and so forth. So you can think of that as an investment in human capital, in the sense that it would it helped uh, it helped societies to invest in the human capital of its members when it came to religious education. But there is a broader uh, understanding of art as or art consumption as human capital investment. 
So actually, uh, if you think about it, uh, in the United States, for instance, a lot of young people, um, especially in families that are a part of the elite, uh, they learn a musical instrument growing up. Uh, they learn to play piano, they learn how to play the violin. And that can also be seen as an investment in human capital that goes beyond just investment is specific in music talent. It's also investment that has to do with the ability to learn patience, uh, hard work, so a work ethic that is instilled in, in, in the child. Uh, also, the appreciation of art. You know, again, uh, elite families, they teach their children to appreciate paintings, they appreciate they, to appreciate classical music. And there's certainly an aspect of this that is like signaling, but it's also the ability to appreciate what other members of the elite also appreciate. So it's not just signaling, it's also like the ability to communicate with them because you share uh, similar preferences. So I definitely think there is an element of both. Your research focuses on the Renaissance. Its overall importance for human culture and civilization is implied in its name. But in terms of the particular organization of art markets, what is particular and special about it that may be, for example, quite different from contemporary modern art markets? Absolutely. Um, there are several differences. Uh, like There are several differences in organization of any markets between medieval and Renaissance periods and, and contemporary markets. Uh, I think, at least in my perspective, there's several organizational uh, features that make it very distinct from contemporary art markets. One is the fact that art was produced by teams. Today, we think of uh, the artists, especially the visual artists. And I specialize, if I can even say that I specialize in this, but I specialize in the visual arts, especially painting. So today, visual artists are big names with big reputation. Think of Bansky, right? That are supposed to be working on their own, right? There's one name. There's not an idea that they're a team working under that brand. That was definitely not the view of uh, the medieval art producers and art consumers. There was no expectation that a given painting was the result of just one man working on his own. Um, and so definitely this, this, the importance of the workshop um, that is that this organized teamwork uh, makes Renaissance and medieval art different from contemporary art. Also, most, if not all, visual arts paintings that were produced during the medieval and renaissance periods they were made on commission and commission today is very rare at the very at the higher end of the visual arts um i i in, in a previous version of one of my papers i have a, a an interesting you know like case that that happened uh recently uh, where a danish museum commissioned a painting, actually two paintings from a uh, modern, a contemporary artist. And he just left two empty canvases, called it, take the money and run, and delivered it to the museum as the actual fulfillment of the contract. And the museum, of course, sued him, sued him for the money, but said, hey, this is, this is art. I, I made a piece of art. So with contemporary art, commission doesn't really work. There's, a, there's very much an understanding that art should be made for art's sake. Uh, there's very much understanding that the artist should be producing the art that he wants to produce and not be embroiled, but that all of the constraints that like the preferences of the consumers of this art, the preferences of the patrons of this art, um, 
what they look like. And instead, he should just fulfill his vision, his artistic vision. That wasn't necessarily the perspective in Renaissance art. There were both customary constraints on the artist. There's like most art was religious. Uh, most paintings represented episodes from, from the Bible or, or from the lives uh, of saints or outside of religious paintings that might have like patriotic history themes. Uh, but it was there was no perspective that the artist should just be free to produce whatever he wanted. And so these are repercussions for the organization of art. For for instance, there were no intermediaries really. The, the interaction, the economic interaction was between a patron and a painter or a patron and a master. Uh, while today we have intermediaries that uh, like, for instance, galleries or the directors of galleries or auction houses. Uh, very few paintings at the higher end are produced for a specific patron. Before we move into the economics properly, I want to clearly understand specifically how art marks work back then. So continuing with that, let's say I'm a new aristocrat that inherited a lot of land from my recently deceased father, and I'm building a new state for which I need some new paintings to adorn it. What would I need to do to look for and then contract an artist? Mm -hmm. So thankfully, we know a little bit about this because some of the correspondence between patrons and painters has survived, especially for a very important patron in, in the Renaissance, Isabella d'Este, who kind of who kind of fulfills uh, the, the, the kind of scenario that you envisioned there. So generally what would happen is that you would have a specific need for a painting. Like you, for instance, said you, you need to adorn uh, your new estate or a new building. Uh, in many cases during the Renaissance, especially the earlier period, it was about uh, uh, chapels. You know, uh, paintings that would either go as altarpieces on top of the altars in these chapels or frescoes for the walls and ceilings of these chapels. And, and medieval churches had a lot of chapels. One church could have anywhere between like two or three chapels to up to a dozen chapels. So there were a lot of paintings to be made. And so given the need you and your preferences, in some cases, the patrons had were connoisseurs. They, they knew they were experts in Renaissance art. And so... They would combine their preferences for the style of different painters with their needs. And then they would look for the right candidate or candidates. Uh, and sometimes they had agents, agents in different art centers. So for instance, we know that Isabella d'Este had agents in Florence and she had agents in Venice. And these were people that worked for her to recruit artists when she had a need. And so after, after you had found maybe one, two, three, four candidates, you might ask them to to send a uh, early sketch uh, to see if their idea of what the painting should look like uh, kind of fits with your preferences or fits with your expectations. And if you found the right candidate, you start the, the process of coming up with an agreement, coming up with a contract. And so it's kind of like a bargaining phase. And during this, during this time, they, they would discuss anything from what the painting had to look like, the kind of form that it would take. Is it going to be a, a, a older piece? Is it going to be a canvas? Is it going to be a fresco? Uh, what kind of materials might go into it? Uh, what the subject would be? And again, they would go back and forth on this. Uh, should it be a religious painting? Should it be a mythological painting? Should it have many figures, few figures? What should be in the background? Uh, also, compensation, of course, <laughs> would be debated. And also, very important, the deadline. Uh, this is one of the things that I didn't really thought about when I when I started working this, but this was a time where there was a lot of uncertainty about 
how long you would be leaving, right? Uh, you had the Black Death going on. People could die from just like a simple infection. Uh, you better not get a cold because that could <laughs> that could lead to uh, to some bad outcomes. Eating something raw might cause you to die of dysenteria very quickly. So the timing of how long it would take to get this painting done was also very, very important. By the way, the artist, not just the patient, the artist might die, might die unexpectedly. And so who's going to have to pick up his work or do you have to then hire somebody else? These very important things. So, so they were heavily discussed. Um, also, the painters were very busy. And so uh, making sure that they meet all the deadlines, that was very important. The painters knew, sorry, patrons knew this. And so they emphasized a lot that uh, their preferences for a deadline, making sure that the painting would be finished in time. For, you see a lot of deadlines are for Easter of this year or for Christmas of this year. So possibly that they, they could show it to friends or, or their social um, uh, social network uh, you know, on, on important holidays or important events and so forth. That once an agreement was reached, they would write down an actual contract and only after the contract had been signed, uh, the, 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 pa the, the, the painter would actually start working on the painting, which could take, depending on the size, depending on, on, the, on the material, depending on, on all sorts of um, uh, aspects, it could take anything from a few months to several years. On the opposite, on the supply side, let's say I'm a young person who shows interest and talent in painting. What do I need to do to become a proper artist that then sells paint for a living? Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> There were several channels uh, that one could take. Now, if nobody noticed that you were a good, that you had talent for, for that, uh, it was unlikely that you could just like uh, on your own start that career and, and successfully become a painter. Uh, but a lot of painters um, came up in families of painters or families that had connections with painters. So interestingly, uh, a lot of painters, Renaissance painters actually came from families of guilders and guilders belong to the same kind of like artisan networks as painters you know they were part of guilds and so they were in contact they had their workshops next to painters or within the same neighborhoods uh, a lot of painters worked with guilders because gold was heavily used gold leaf was heavily used in paintings not just for the frame of the painting but also as an actual element of the painting, so a lot of a lot of paintings, especially uh, altarpieces, were first gilded and then painted on top of this layer of gold. So, anyways, uh, your parents noticed that you were very good at drawing. Drawing was seen as kind of like the one necessary condition for somebody to become an artist, and not even just for painting, but also for architecture, which was seen as one of the main arts, and sculpture. You had to be good at what they call disegno, like the actual art of drawing. Uh, so if somebody noticed you, uh, then they could take you to a workshop uh, of an established master, and then you would start your apprenticeship. So for instance, this is how Giotto became a, a painter. The, 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 the story goes that he was just drawing circles, and then another painter was walking by, and he saw this very talented kid just drawing circles uh, free-handed. Uh, and so they recruited him on uh, in his workshop. Um, this story, by the way, is true of a bunch of other painters where like, somebody just notices that they're very talented and they recruit them. Uh, we don't know exactly how many years one spent or how early one could start. It's, it's, it's probably true that one could start between six and, say, six and 15-year-old. The apprenticeship 
the recommended apprenticeship that we know from some uh, contempor contemporary uh, contemporaneous sources was 13 years. So it was pretty long, uh, but it really depended on the talent of the of the person. So for instance, um, there's definitely there's definitely if the recommended times 13 years, there are definitely people that served as apprentices for 13 years. But for instance, Leonardo da Vinci only served as an apprentice for nine years. And in fact, probably, probably less than that. And uh, his, his example is probably good for like very talented uh, young, young painters. He was just so good that his master decided to give up on painting altogether. <laughs> right? So he was like, you know, you run the shop. I'm not, I'm not as good. But also, again, I want to emphasize that some workshops were family businesses. So some of the most important painters in Venice, for instance, the Bellini clan, the Bellini dynasty, was really like uh, several generations of painters. Um, in, in Florence, the, uh, Filippo Lippi was a very, very important painter. His son, Filippino Lippi, uh, Filippino Lippi first started as, you know, as an apprentice, and then his assistant, and then took over the the workshop when Filippo died. So it wasn't unusual for somebody just to become a painter because his father was a painter, just, this, just the way that somebody would become a merchant because his father was a merchant or somebody would become a guild because his father was a guild. You were just telling us about basically the art as being mostly through patrons and commissions, but was there any secondary market for the art at all? Most of the medieval period and the Renaissance, there really wasn't a secondary market. Now, there could, there could be instances, instances of a patron, a wealthy individual, say a merchant or a aristocrat that was uh, enamored with a specific piece of art and might try to get the specific piece of art. I remember reading that some French nobleman really wanted this one fresco and, and uh, investigated whether it was possible to just like remove the wall from this one church and move it to France. And it was dissuaded because the cost would have been prohibitive. Uh, imagine like transportation costs were pretty high and it was also not especially easy to move these paintings around. So the secondary market wasn't really there. Um, <clears throat> and also... I remember that this art, most of these art, especially again for most of this period, when and when I say Renaissance, uh, I mean it's it's a little broader than the way we think in terms of the Renaissance as a historical period. So anywhere from like the revival of painting in the last few decades of the 13th century to the first few decades of the 16th century. So it's a long period of time. So things change during this period, but for most of this period. This was public art. So uh, most paintings were either altarpieces, which they had a sacred uh, function to play within churches. So these they were not seen as being, I don't want to use this word, but like commodities that could be then sold, right? They were supposed to be used in that church, right? So other paintings were, uh frescoes so they were very hard to sell they were very hard to 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 have a secondary market for uh, but even if they were not religious they had patriotic functions so they they might be paintings that were done for the city hall of a commune of a city republic again the, it's hard to to imagine that there could be a secondary market for these kind of paintings later in the renaissance we do see 
a rise, a slight rise in secondary markets. But that's also because the kind of paintings that are made slightly changes. We start seeing portraits, right? So portraits don't fulfill necessarily that function or like the, the original function when the original patron dies, right? So what do we do with this painting? Well, like maybe somebody wants to buy it. And so there is a secondary market or mythological paintings that were made for like the private rooms of noblemen or merchants. And so you could have a secondary market for that because again, it was meant for private consumption, not for public consumption. So <clears throat> the answer is complicated. It is mostly no for the first couple centuries of the Renaissance. And then a little bit towards the end when we start seeing changes on the demand side uh, and definitely way more uh, in Italy as well during the 16th and 17th century. So the Mannerism and, 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 uh, and Baroque period. But already when you think, for instance, of uh, the Netherlands, and I'm not an expert of the Flemish art market during this period, but uh, my understanding is that they had stronger secondary markets there where they had the different paintings that were being made. Again, much more of an emphasis on um, paintings for private consumption, like portraits and, and other types of paintings. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say most of your research on this area focuses very much on studying how these many actors solve monitoring problems. Art is, of course, a complex good that is even hard to define and hence faces huge monitoring costs. As consumers of art, the patrons wanted, to, of course, to monitor the contracted artist, and the artist himself wanted to monitor his aids in the production of art. So let's focus on the latter for a moment. One of your papers focuses on explaining the workshop model of art production, where the artist acted as the creative force designing the pieces, which were then either finished or copied and reproduced by their artisan aides. Could you elaborate a bit on why this model prevailed? Yeah, absolutely. So let me let me give a, another example to set up the stage. Um, Raphael uh, was hired by uh, the Pope to go and uh, and do some frescoes in the Apostol Apostolic Palace in in the Vatican, and there were a lot of rooms <laughs> that were supposed to be to be frescoed. Uh, so that was a project that was probably going to take several years. Now Raphael uh, was in high demand. There were a lot of other patrons who would have wanted Raphael, patrons in Perugia, patrons in Florence, patrons in, in Emilia-Romagna, patrons in, in, in Venice. They would have wanted Raphael to go and work for them. So Raphael um, thought, okay, can I accelerate this, this process? And how do you accelerate this process? Well, how about you delegate? You delegate a little bit of the painting. You delegate a little bit of the, of the work to one of your assistants, one of your apprentices. And so he did. He gave to one of his apprentices the painting of uh, one of the rooms. Uh, the painting is called the Oath of Leo III. So it's like the Oath of one of the popes. And uh, one art historian described this as a complete disaster. Uh, in fact, if you, if you Google this painting, you can see that it's not especially good. The faces are all weird. The, their eyes are like uh, like are all astray. They're not aligned. It, it's a it's bad. It, you wouldn't say that it's a Raphael painting, right? It's in fact it's attributed to his workshop, which which is true. And so uh, this art historian says um, after this event, Raphael was so upset that he decided not to delegate any painting of any face or many or major figure to any of his assistants. Right? And it makes sense. 
it makes sense. There is a trade-off here between specialization that allows to more effectively, more quickly uh, produce a painting and the, th the threats of um, opportunism or, or not even opportunism. Like maybe maybe this assistant wasn't trying to be opportunistic, wasn't trying to, to slack off, but it wasn't as good. Monitoring, direct supervision uh, might have been necessary for this specific task. Right, and so painters always had to figure out how to solve this trade-off. And some solved it in one direction. For instance, Michelangelo was known to basically delegate nothing uh, or delegate very little, the grinding of colors, uh, some people say. But very little in Michelangelo's paintings uh, was ever done by anyone but him. Uh, but then some other painters solved it in a, in a different direction, right? On average, so if you get like the model workshop, the distribution of, of, the, of the tasks was pretty much the same. So the design of the painting, so the idea of what the painting ought to look like, uh, the, the, bargaining, the bargaining process, so the, 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 the agreement with the, with the patron. Uh, all executive decisions were in the hands of just one person, and that was the master. And the master was also in charge of painting all the major figures, especially their faces and their hands, all the most complicated aspects, but also all of those aspects where the style of the painter was more visible and the ability to perceive details and problems and, and mistakes was also, um, was also greater on the part of the, of the patron. And so they took on those tasks, but they didn't have to, for instance, put together uh, an altarpiece or, or grind the colors or even do all of the studies, they call them all like basically uh, uh, coming up with a design for like the minor objects or minor figures in the background or to just paint coats or like clothes or, or the sky. It's not necessary really to have the, the master doing that when it's a repetitive task that can be objectively measured. But when it comes to those tasks that are hard to communicate their features, right? If you're, I, I try to think as like, how do I communicate this aspect of painting to somebody that doesn't really have much experience here? It's like, imagine that Picasso had the idea for Guernica and tried to have somebody else paint it for him. Guernica wouldn't look the way that he does, right? You see on the painting, the idea that Picasso had all of the elements you know, what in the Renaissance they call the composition or the ingenio, like the idea, the original idea that Picasso had must be expressed by him. And so some, some things can be directed, uh, but those have to be things that are, uh, that are not especially specific, that are not especially important for the vision, that are just repetitive tasks that can objectively measured, objectively evaluated. And so that, of course, is my argument affected the way uh, that the workshop was organized, uh, affected the distribution of the task, affected the fact that the workshop was, in most cases, owned by just one person. You didn't really have uh, cooperatives work of, of artists working on one painting. Yet cooperative of, art, of artists were like, they shared costs of like the actual physical building, right? But not two main artists working on just one painting because it's very hard to organize that kind of, uh, the kind of enterprise. I must confess I have a strange fascination for medieval Romanesque art. And one of the immediate things that catch your attention when you look at it is 
precisely that most of it was not signed by a single individual and hence nowadays can only be attributed to the master of specific workshops. So the whole idea of an artist, of course, wasn't there yet. That is what makes the Renaissance world uh, special from an art point of view. But from an economic perspective, would you say that your model can capture the changes through time as well, where the creative monitoring costs increase from medieval to the Renaissance, which then allowed the artist to become the primordial figure in the workshop over the mere artisans? So I wouldn't be a good economist if I didn't say that. Yes, of course, my model does explain, does account for that. Uh, so, but I, I actually do believe that. So you, you mentioned that early on. So during the, the Romanesque period, but like throughout most of the Middle Ages, right? Up until the time of Tuccio and Giotto and Cimabue. So the artists that are identified with the revival of these lost art. Painters were not seen as artists at all. They were artisans. Uh, in fact, if you look at Romanesque art, it is really hard to perceive differences in style. Right? There is a lot of confusion uh, among art historians, but like it's, it's hard to attribute paintings to any one artist. In fact, at least for Central and Northern Italy, a lot of the Romanesque art was done by Greeks. So you had Greeks that would come from Byzantium. Uh, a lot of them were monks. They would come into Italian monasteries in the mountains of central Italy, and they would work within their own monasteries many times or within local churches to create these paintings that had, that had been kind of like uh, categorized into like a different kind of um, scenes and different kind of elements and, and very kind of like reproducible, uh, with very reproducible standards. They very much look like each other. And so in that kind of scenario, uh, there's really no reputation for an artist. There really wasn't a market for artists uh, or for their paintings, the, the services, I should say, of the artists. And so there was no need on the one hand for signature, but also there was no uh, demand for it. You know, there, there was no like demand for a painting by Raphael, right? It was just, okay, well, we, we need paintings for this church. That guy is is good at painting. Let let him let him cover this this wall in, uh, in with figures and and, and so forth. I, I'm not trying to diminish the, the accomplishments of these artists, uh, but there is some element of truth that painting had been a lost art until Giotto. You know, there was not uh, much creativity behind it. There was not much originality behind it, and so we don't expect there to be a brand behind it. Um, but with the Renaissance you see the opposite, right? The Renaissance, you see the beginning of specific styles. Painters really did try to come up with their own recognizable style. And if you look at paintings from the Renaissance, of course, there are similarities, right? Of course, there are influences. But you can see when different paintings were done by the same master or their workshop. Uh, but you see the differences across masters and across workshops. And so definitely there were, there were more difference, differences in styles. And with that comes the need, the demand for uh, authorship, requests for authorship. In the documents, in the contract, you start seeing formulas that require that certain elements were done by the artist's own hand. 
that this formula sua mano emerges and becomes very popular. And by the way, over time, these grew so important that the idea of the workshop kind of declined. So the workshops were still in use, but the involvement of the workshop in the actual painting very much uh, declined in popularity because, because patrons really, really wanted the work to be done by the by the by the by the painter that was hired. And also the styles became so specific and, and also like I think the complexity of the painting and the technique uh, became so large that it, it was it was complicated to continue to run a workshop in the same way that Renaissance painters did, where there was like the heavy involvement of assistants and apprentices in the actual execution of the painting. Okay, let's move on and turn to the patron artist relationship. First of all, who had the upper hand in the bargaining process? Was this a buyer or seller market? Who had the most market power? So my my sense is that there definitely should be some degree of what would say market power on the supply side, right? When you see differentiation in style, uh, that to the degree that you see, especially towards the end of Renaissance, it's hard to say there's like well, it's like a perfectly competitive market. It's it's probably not true. These artists were able to demand higher compensations than say you you know your run of the mill uh, painter. On the on the demand side. There was a lot of competition, especially in the first couple of centuries. As I said, a lot of these paintings were for religious purposes. So you have all of these chapels, you have all of these religious orders, you had monasteries, uh, you had different churches that were asking for your for your services all throughout Italy. So this was very much a national market. Well, I shouldn't say national because Italy wasn't a country, but like it was that it was a regional or interregional market. So. Uh, Florentine painters would go to uh, to Rome, and they would go to Venice, and Venetian painters would go to Rome, and Perugian painters would go to Florence, and so forth. So it was definitely <clears throat> not a local market, but at least a regional market. But the evidence seems to suggest that the competition was strong also on the supply side. So I, I did say there were clearly some elements of market power, but for instance, there was some work that has been done on pricing. Uh, of for Renaissance paintings, Federico Etro and his co-authors have done some work on this that I would recommend anybody interested in this question to to check out. But he shows that there were basically there was no divergence in prices between different uh, uh, cities, uh, so between different local markets and between between different genres, which seems to suggest that as soon as a premium premium was earned in a certain city, as soon as a premium was earned. In a say in a new genre, uh, painters would uh, run toward that market. They would start supplying those genres, and they would physically move to those centers uh, to quote unquote meet demand, and so bring prices down to competitive level. So he says that this is consistent with a uh, monopolistic uh, competition model. So definitely elements of market power in that there was differentiation on the supply side. But competition was strong enough that uh, profits were not earned really in this market, especially when you control for the identity of the of the painter that could you know could could signal some some other things. So, I want to say for most of this period, the market was pretty competitive. When towards the end of the period, though, the demand side becomes very heavily concentrated. So, if you think of Florence, the rise of the de Medici family especially after they come back in the 1530s, in, in yeah, 
they basically control the market. You start seeing a lot of regulation of what artists can and cannot do. You, you see a movement basically towards a unionization. All, all, all of previous moves to unionization, like the, for, the forming of a guild, a proper guild for artists had failed in the past. And now you see the creation of one that was pretty successful at controlling uh, at controlling the market. There were like rules that were introduced, like, like Florentine painters couldn't export their paintings without authorization and so forth. So definitely, I think that towards the end of the Renaissance, you see a change from uh, republicanism to what historians call the signoria system, so like more monarchic systems of governance. Uh, you also see a change on the demand side from very competitive markets to much more monopolistic markets. And so that also probably affected like the stylistic choices of painters. So patrons were basically able to 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 leverage their market power to to get the painters to do more of their bidding rather than you know allow them to fulfill their own preferences. After the commission contract was signed, what mechanisms did the diverse patrons have to monitor and oversee the contracted artist regarding the quality of the piece and the deadlines? And how common was it for contracts to be renegotiated? Well, <laughs> patrons did a lot of things to try to monitor painters. Um, one of my so the, a simple one would be to just like look over their shoulders, right? Like to 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 stand behind the painter while the painter is working. That didn't really work. We know, for instance, there was a, a, a abbot um, that had hired uh, Leonardo da Vinci to do a painting in in, in his monastery, and he complained to the Duke of Milan that Leonardo wasn't doing anything. He was just staring at the wall all day. And the Duke of Milan had to tell him, was like, well, look, you can't just like count the hours that he's actually painting. That's not how art works. Like, that's not how Leonardo works. Uh, so it's kind of hard to just monitor just by looking at them. Because if you really knew what was going on, you wouldn't need the artist in the first place. Um, but they did have, the, the, like, more effective devices uh, to monitor uh, the different attributes of the contract, the different attributes of, of the agreement. So think about, for instance, delays. So, of course, the patron wanted the painting to be made in time. They valued the painting sooner of the same quality, right? They, they, they valued it sooner rather than later. Uh, and so they tried to come up with ways of constraining the painter's ability to delay, delay, delay. One One way was just to delay payment, or at least delay some chunk of the payment. So a contract might say, look, we'll pay you uh, on um, like monthly increments, but we're going to leave one third of the commission until after you you deliver the painting. Right? And so that was a way to try to, to resolve this monitoring issue by making it in the incentive of the painter to finish in time, or at least not to delay too much. Another uh, another one was to like check in on the painter. So, for instance, uh, again, a patron that had agents uh, in the city where the, the the painter was working might ask the agent to go and check and ask for for updates and threaten to not pay. You know, look, if you haven't even started, let's say that we do, we 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 cancel the agreement. We 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 you know we it's a breach of contract. We're not gonna pay you at all. In fact, you gotta uh, give back the money that we did pay you. So we did see uh, some, some some examples of that. So, but that's kind of like a objective element or, or, or attribute of the exchange. What about the more subjective one? So, for instance, the quality of the painting—that's really hard, right? 
because you can't just say if the patron doesn't like it, then he doesn't have to pay uh, the painter at all. Because then patrons would always say, I was like, ah, I don't really like it. How about half? I'll pay you half, right? So instead what they devised uh, was a, a basically an adjudication system. They called it the Lodo. And they, uh, they would say in the contract, it's like, this is not true of every contract, but it's true of a significant, uh, a significant amount of contracts. They would agree in advance that if there was any disagreement over the quality of the painting or the value of the painting, and so over the compensation of the painter, uh, they would each uh, get to select representatives that they had to be basically experts or painters or connoisseurs. Uh, and they would then have to decide uh, the, the amount of money that was owed to the painter. Uh, and so like the schemes could change. So sometimes it was uh, one uh, representative of the painter, one representative of the patron, and they had to agree on a compensation. Sometimes it was two and two. Sometimes it was two and two, but then they get the, the, the four of them get to select a fifth person to to uh, to, to, to have a majority vote and so forth. And so uh, that allowed for uh, resolving some potential disputes over quality, which is very hard to objectively evaluate, right? It's one thing to say, well, you promised to say there, were, there would be five, uh, five main figures and there's only two, but it's another one to say, it was like, well, you said there was gonna be a beautiful painting and it's a matte painting. It's not a very good painting. It's like, how do you, how do, you do that? So they had to kind of like, uh, figure out some some third party adjudication system to do that. But I, I, you asked specifically about um, contracts if if they uh, if there was like an ex post bargaining process where they like uh, change contract features and 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 the agreements and the, the standard of agreement. Uh, we don't really know uh, insofar as formally. Uh, we haven't there there's not a lot of contracts that have survived. It's like dozens of them, but like not hundreds or thousands. Uh, so we haven't gotten any evidence of that, which doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It's just, it probably wasn't super common, but informally it's probably true that a painter could say, it was like, look, uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to be able to do it by December 1st. How about, uh, you know, next spring. And, and the patron probably says like, okay, but like, no, no later than that. So, uh, so probably stuff like this did happen, or or there could be something like the price of gold skyrockets, and so if, even though they agreed that a certain amount of gold was to be used in the painting, maybe the painter could say, "Hey, do you still want me to use that amount of gold, given how expensive it's gotten?" And so some informal kind of like a renegotiation could probably did happen. I want to end our conversation by asking your general views on art and the political economy surrounding it. So I have one family member, which is an art historian, and she very much dislikes contemporary art and more or less blames modern society for what he calls banalization and trivialization of art. Would you agree with her? Would you say that more market-oriented societies have opened the access to art to the masses, but may also have lowered its quality? Or maybe the market just has been segmented into different niches with different quality thresholds? Well, okay. So this is a tough question because I have strong feelings about this, <laughs> uh, but it's a debated issue. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know that economics can entirely, uh, can entirely answer this question at, or, or that economists have answered this question. 
Uh, having said that, this is this is what I think, and what I think is that if you believe that um, there is some objective standard of beauty, right? There's some intrinsic quality to to art that makes it art, right? A lot of people say, okay, like contemporary art isn't art; it's not very artistic. Well, I tend to agree with that, but that kind of presumes that there is some standard of beauty that is at least to some extent objective. If you believe in that, and if you believe that elite preferences are on average closer to that objective standard, then let's call it mass preferences. And you believe that market societies, that the presence of markets allows for the masses to more easily demand or to, to bid for the services uh, of the artists, then it seems to me that it does follow that market societies do tend to redirect some of the efforts of artists away from, say, high art towards popular art or popularized art or low art. Um, so it's not just on the demand side, by the way. It's also on the supply side. So in uh, the Industrial Revolution, you know, which is made possible by the presence of markets, which makes possible the expansion of markets, right? Division of labor and so forth also means that art is reproducible, that the marginal cost of reproducing a piece of art falls down to basically zero. It's not really zero, but like very close to zero. And so what that means now is that when you're creating a piece of art, when you're thinking about creating a piece of art, you have the choice between making something unique for like just one person, one buyer, or possibly like future buyers, like if you think of, about a secondary market, or millions, billions of buyers, right? And so that's the trade-off. And so if you think of say, look, Raphael, Michelangelo, Perugino, all of these names that we know from the Renaissance, they were wealthy. They were not the wealthiest people in their societies, very clearly they were not, but they were very wealthy by the standards of those societies, which probably indicates that they cared about compensation they care about money they care about having a good life so now ask yourself if they were to face a trade-off between serving master sorry patrons uh, like they did or serving millions billions of people and possibly make just as much money or even more money would some of them have not gotten into the making of high art the way that we think of of it today I think that it, it, it makes no sense to say that none of them ever would have. It makes no, no sense to think that artists just don't respond to incentives. Look, artists, they probably care about art for art's sake, but there is a price at which they would be willing to give up at least some art for art's sake. So I do think that market societies do have some degree of, let's say, like corruption, introduce some degree of corruption if, if you care about um, art and artistic endeavors. But it's not just market society. So on the other end, if you look at the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union didn't produce a lot of beautiful art that like your family member would appreciate. And so competition does matter, I think. There's a lot of work actually in this that shows that, or at least that argues that competition on the demand side was crucial for uh, the achievements of Baroque and classical music or uh, Elizabethan theater or Florentine paintings, or say, you know, like an early 
sorry, early 20th century Parisian art. Competition on the demand side, it really did matter uh, for, you know, basically freeing artists to not just do the bidding of one or a selected few number of, uh, of buyers. I must confess that I personally do kind of like Soviet art. It must be related to the abstractiveness of it, just kind of the way I like also medieval Romanesque art. Well, I don't know. Well, thank you very much, Enio. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. What makes art truly special beyond its entertaining function is its ability to help us become introspective into who we are as individuals and, more importantly, as part of society. Understanding art from an economic perspective may then help elucidate not only its transactional aspects, but the very core conception of it, art and the artist as the result of societal incentives. has been Pens Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.